Hebrews chapter 7, we will be finishing this chapter this morning, reading verses 20 through 28 this morning. Hebrews chapter 7, picking up in verse 20. Here's the reading of God's word. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant, and immutable word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for gifting us this time together this morning. Thank you for your son, for your spirit, and for your word. We pray that your spirit would teach us your word as it reveals your son to us. Father, we confess that our minds are often filled with things that have no eternal benefit. Help us, O oh God, to fix our attention on eternal matters. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated, beloved. Wrongs abuses, mistreatments, hostilities, hurts, harms, sufferings, offenses, insults, aggressions, oppositions, attacks, assaults. You know, those things done against us and those that we have done to others. The, def the Bible defines all of this as sin, Sin that is first and foremost against God before it is ever against another person. The question then is why do these things occur? And unlike popular opinion, the Bible declares that the human heart is not good. In the Bible, that the heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately sick. Who could understand it? And the Lord says that he searches the heart and he tests the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. It has been rightly said that the heart of the matter is that the heart is the matter. Make no mistake about it. 
God judges sin. He searches the hearts and he tests the mind and he gives every man according to his ways. And so we must be so careful not to excuse sin, not to minimize sin, not to justify sin, and not to misclassify sin. You know, secular psychology tries to explain sin through observation of behaviors. But secular psychology cannot do what God does. It cannot search the heart and test the mind. And thus secular psychology promotes that the human heart is good. That people are good at their core. Thus, if they mistreat one another, it must be that something has happened to them. It's in their childhood or in their environment that has caused this. And thus, the answer, according to them, would be therapy or reconditioning or some type of rehabilitation. They need to be restored in their minds back to having a good heart that they think they were born with. But there's a major problem here. The foundational assumption that they were working off of is flawed. And, and not just flawed, it is the complete opposite of the truth. But how do we know this and how can I say that? Because God says so. Man's heart is deceitful and desperately sick. We are not in need of getting back to how it started when we were born. It started sick. And as a society, we can come up with many ways to justify and to excuse sin. One way is to reclassify sin as a dysfunction. But our reckless choices and our rebellion against God is not a symptom of a disease or a dysfunction it is not a symptom from a rough childhood or a challenging environment. Psalm 14, quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, says that no one is good. No, not one. Why? Well, it has to do with our sin nature that is traced back to the Garden of Eden. And there Adam was our federal head, meaning that he was a God-appointed representative for all of humanity. And when Adam fell, we all fell. In Romans 5, we read that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. This one man, speaking of Adam, Later in Romans 5 and verse 17, we read, because of one man's trespass, speak, speaking of Adam, death reigned through that one man. In verse 18, one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. In verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. What does that mean? It means that we were born into sin. That we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It is not our environment or our upbringing that is the cause for our sin. 
It is the fact that we were born with corrupted hearts, with an inclination to rebel against God and to do what is right in our own eyes. Well, sadly, there is nothing in your power that you can do to change the condition of your heart. You can put lipstick and a dress on a pig, but that pig is not Cinderella. It's still a pig. And you could put a suit on a donkey, but that donkey is still not Prince Charming. It's still a donkey. And you could put a heap of sugar into hydrogen cyanide, and it's still not Kool-Aid. It's still poison. What's my point? The point is this. We all have a sin problem. All of us have a sinful heart. None of us are righteous. You know this about yourself, and I know this about myself. But thanks be to God. Just as Adam was our first federal head, our representative, we have another federal head, another representative, and a much better one, a perfect one, Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So though we have this sinful nature, this great weakness that all of Adam's descendants were with, we read about how our union with Christ as our representative is far superior Hold your place here in Hebrews 7. I've quoted from Romans 5. I want you to turn there. Turn back to the left, Romans 5. And as you are flipping to Romans 5, I've already read some of what is recorded there about our union in Adam. And it's through that union that we have this weakness, this fallen nature, this corrupted heart. But let's pick up in verse 6 and read through verse 11 of Romans chapter 5. We read beginning in verse 6 of Romans 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. A far superior federal head church. A perfect one. Keep, keep your place there. Just jump down to verse 17. Let's read 17 through 19. Comparing those two federal heads, one being in Adam and now being in Christ. Starting in verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, speaking of Adam here, Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Why do I point us here? Because, beloved, this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is pointing to. We were created in the image of God. We are image bearers. This means we are to be a reflection of his character. In the Old Testament, God told his people that they should be holy as he is holy. Peter quotes that in the New Testament. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are to be a reflection of him. But we are marred by sin. Perfectionism is not possible. So what is the answer? The answer to sin is not therapy. It is not rehab. It is Jesus. The answer to sin is not any other religious system. It is Christ and him alone. The author of Hebrews focuses attention on Christology, on the understanding of Christ and his work. And this must be our focus as well. Not just this morning as we gather together, but at all times. Christ must be the focus of our attention. Who he is. What he has done. What he is doing. What he is still to do. This is what matters. In this great chapter of Hebrews, which you can flip over back to Hebrews 7, the author begins that chapter, as you may recall, by looking at Melchizedek as a type of Christ. It was by looking at Melchizedek that it shows us the excellency of Jesus, that Jesus is both king and he is priest. He's king of righteousness. He is king of peace, and he is a priest that serves forever. Thus, the author shows us that Jesus is a better hope than what was offered in the Old Covenant. Because Jesus, the God-man, is eternal. He is described as having an indestructible life here in the seventh chapter of Hebrews, which means he never dies. He lives forever. And as we will see this morning, he is perfect forever, which is the title of this sermon this morning. Perfect forever. What does that mean? It means nothing is ever taken away from him. He is complete. He is full. He is, as the author of Hebrews started this letter, in the opening of this letter, verse 3 of chapter 1, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is Jesus. <laughs> Here in this last portion of 
chapter 7, the author leaves Melchizedek entirely behind. To the extent that he omits the last line of Psalm 110, verse 4, when he quotes it in verse 21. And this is intentional. Because all the focus now is on Jesus. Once again, if you're visiting us this morning, we're, we're in this text where the author is arguing that the priesthood of Jesus is far superior to, than the Levitical priesthood under the Old Covenant that was established in the Old Testament. And so in this passage this morning, we're going to see three wonderful descriptions of Christ. We'll see that he is a permanent priest. We'll see that in verses 20 through 24. We'll see that he is an immortal intercessor in verse 25. And then we will see he is an all-sufficient sacrifice in verses 26 through 28. So let's begin with this first description that the author gives us, a permanent priest. Looking back to your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 7, we'll read verse 20 through 24 once again. Beginning in verse 20. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So the author here, in, in proving his point about the superiority of Christ's priesthood and the permanence of it, he once again quotes from Psalm 110, verse 4. Now, if you've been with us through the study, you know that he's referred to this same psalm on many other occasions. Seven times he's already quoted this psalm. But this time as he quotes it, he does two things a little different. First, he quotes the preamble, which he had not done earlier. He quotes this part of the psalm. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. He has yet to quote that part of Psalm 110, verse 4. You know, there are many distinctions about Christ's priesthood and comparing it to the Levitical priesthood. But the author here is pointing out something significant, that Christ was made with an oath. Now, if you were with us in chapter 6, you remember that there was an oath that was there as well to Abraham that God made. And we learned about the significance of God making an oath. Remember that for God, an oath is not necessary for him to make since he cannot lie. If God says it, it will be. He makes an oath for the sake of of human beings. It is meant to confirm and to underscore his commitment. And by making an oath and saying that Christ's priesthood was forever, Jesus' priesthood was designed to last. Whereas the Levitical priesthood was restricted to a certain period of time. The author here is not suggesting that the Levitical priesthood was contrary to God's will or God's intention. He is simply emphasizing that it was not intended to last. But the author here is very intentional in pointing out that the priesthood of Aaron was not instituted with an oath. Only Christ's was. 
And whatever is instituted with an oath can never change. Thus, he is a priest forever. The Levitical priests were appointed by divine appointment, but they did not enter their office by a divine oath. The Levitical priests had only dealt with the shadows of the good things to come and not with the very substance of the things. The morning and evening lambs did not take away sin. They only mirrored the great blood shedding of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The second thing the author does when he quotes Psalm 110 verse 4 here is he leaves off the tail end about being after the order of Melchizedek. Again, he's being very intentional here. He has dealt with Melchizedek pointing to Christ and now he's saying all eyes on Christ. St. Jesus is priest forever. And since he has an eternal priesthood, look at verse 22 with me. We read this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now we're going to do a cursory look at this better covenant because chapter 8, the author of Hebrews expounds in it. And Lord willing, we will look at that next week. But this is the first time that the author uses the word covenant in Hebrews. And that is significant because the word covenant is used in this letter of Hebrews more than it is comprehensively used in the rest of the New Testament. It is 17 times used in Hebrews. And in all of the New Testament combined, outside of Hebrews, it's only used 16 times. He has a point to make. And in verse 22 here, this is the first reference to the better covenant in Hebrews. And what he says about it is Jesus is stated as its guarantor. That's another interesting word. There's quite a few words here in Hebrews that are found nowhere else in the New Testament. Here's another one. Only found here in Hebrews. This word guarantor, it describes a third party who accepts responsibility to secure another person's contractual or covenantal commitment, even at the risk of one's own property or life. Maybe to condense that a little bit, to put it a different way, it is one who agrees to undertake for another who is lacking in ability to discharge his own obligations. It is being a surety for somebody else. We see one example of this in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. Puts himself as a guarantor on behalf of Onesimus. In Philemon, verses 18 and 19, Paul writes, if he, speaking of, or he says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write with my own hand, I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Paul says anything that this runaway slave owes you, put it on my account. I will stand in his place. Charge it to me. I love what A.W. Pink comments here about this. He says, quote, In like manner, Christ engaged himself unto the Father for his elect, saying, Charge to my account whatsoever my people owe thee, and I will fully discharge their debts. Pink continues, It was Christ pledging himself or making himself responsible for the fulfillment of all that the everlasting covenant required on the part of those who were to share its provisions. End quote. 
It is Jesus himself that is the guarantee of the new covenant. It is through his perpetual priesthood that is secured by an oath that he guarantees that the new covenant's blessings will reach their intended recipients. God will certainly fulfill his promises. His promises of forgiving the sins of his people. Remember Adam as our first representative. But he was only the first. There is another, a one who is perfect. It is Christ, our perfect representative. Thus Paul writes to the church in Corinth in verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 47. He says, the first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, a far superior representative. You say, okay, so why is the author making this point? Well, what is the point here? He's arguing for a better covenant. The better covenant that he will expound on in chapter 8. His point is to encourage his original hearers to stay the course. That Judaism is now defined. It served its purpose in pointing to Christ. Let's peek ahead real quick. Turn to chapter 8, verse 6. We read, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Now we will, Lord willing, look at this in further detail next week. But these promises include complete, once-for-all forgiveness of sins and access to God for his people. You know, besides the oath and Christ being the guarantee, the author of Hebrews drives home the point about Jesus' permanent priesthood in verses 23 and 24. He speaks about the former priests there. He says they were many in number because they were prevented by death continuing in office. But he speaks of Christ of having a priesthood permanently because he continues forever. You know, the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus recorded that there were 83 high priests from Aaron. 13 lived under the tabernacle prior to Solomon. 18 under the first temple before it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And the remainder under the second temple until it was destroyed by Rome in AD 70. The author of Hebrews is making clear to his readers that they should not think that the Levitical priests were better because there was more in number. Why? What's the point? Because dead priests cannot accomplish salvation. They are dead. Only a living priest can do that. And Jesus is the only living priest, the one who lives forever, who does that. The author already has referred in Verse 16, to the indestructible life of Jesus. And thus he has this perpetual priesthood, a permanent priesthood, as the author declares in verse 24. He holds his priesthood permanently. That means it never ends. You know, Hebrews opened up pointing to this reality. In the opening chapter of Hebrews, the author quotes Psalm 102, Verses 25 through 27. It is in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 1 in, 
in chapter 1 of Hebrews, we read this. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll, roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. He sets us up from the very onset of this letter to point us to the priesthood of Jesus that will remain forever, that the tenure of his priestly office is permanent. His years have no end. He is a priest forever, a permanent priesthood. That's the first description we get. And while you're sitting there going, what does that mean? It means a whole lot for you and we'll get there. But the second description he talks about is, points to him as an immortal intercessor. Look with me squarely at verse 25 alone. In verse 25, he says, based upon all this, he says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So as we went through the permanent priesthood, you said, okay, so what? There's your answer. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. True salvation, the only true salvation that is afforded to mankind comes via the priesthood of Christ Jesus. And we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, said of Christ that he will save his people from their sins. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, we read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, we read that he delivers us from the wrath to come. It is Jesus alone that is able to save to the uttermost. To save to the uttermost means that Christ secures a complete, absolute, total, eternal salvation. It means he fully saves us. He, he doesn't begin a work and then says, go, try to finish it on your own. He begins it and he finishes it. It is all Christ's work from beginning to end. Well, we started with our sin problem. Since he saves to the uttermost. This means that no matter how heinous the sins that we have committed, whether they be murder, adultery, idolatry, or any form of lawlessness, that Christ is able to save us. To save us completely and to save us eternally. You know, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power for salvation for everyone who believes. Jesus continues this work to bring us into eternal perfection. The salvation that he imparts is complete and eternal. You know, as a priest, the salvation that Jesus provides addresses every aspect of our spiritual need. He covers everything. It is no wonder that the author spoke of this salvation earlier as a great salvation. 
You know, some people think, well, you don't know my sin. And they think their sin is too grievous to be forgiven. But here we read that he is able to save to the uttermost. That means the uttermost extent of guilt is not beyond the grace and the power of Jesus. He is able to save and to save completely. Please understand that your sin is not too great to be forgiven. His life is worth more than yours. And he gave his life on behalf of yours. To think that your sin is greater than his offering is to think that you are greater than Christ. You know that you're not, and I know that I'm not. He saves to the uttermost. And he does it through his priestly work. That means that we cannot lose salvation because it is dependent upon him and entirely upon him. It is his perfection and his continual work, not your performance. It is from him, through him, and to him. But we also read in this verse that this salvation is not for everyone. Not every person has the riches of Christ's priestly service accredited to them. Look again at verse 25. We see that it is to those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus. Back in chapter 5, verse 9 of Hebrews, the author has already written this in Hebrews 5, 9, he said, And being made perfect, he, speaking of Christ, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. All right, so pause, because everything we've talked about this morning, how can any of us draw near to God or obey Christ if our hearts are so sinful and naturally inclined to rebel against him? Jesus said these profound words in John 6, 44. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What does that mean? It means that a divine work must happen for any of us to come to Christ. It means that God must do the work within us, that he must open up our blind eyes, that he must restore hearing to our deaf ears, that he must replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He must regenerate us by his spirit, give us new life. We read in Ezekiel 11, 19, God said, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. This is the work of God. God alone saves us by granting us the ability to turn 
to Christ. You know, we must repent and we must believe, but both of these are gifts from God. You know, it is the, the Father who gifts the Son with a people that are His. In that same chapter of John, John chapter 6, in verses 37 through 39, Jesus said this, listen, he said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Well, what does that mean? It means this, Jesus saves to the uttermost. All who draw near to God through him, he saves. And he secures our salvation. He will lose nothing. There's great hope and joy and peace to know that his priestly work is what is used to draw me to salvation, to grant me salvation, to sustain salvation. He is the one that causes our faith to persevere. We, we see that in verse 25. Look at the end of verse 25. He always lives to make intercession for them. You know, in that glorious chapter of Isaiah 53, Isaiah prophesied that this would be the ongoing work of our Lord. In Isaiah 53, verse 12 we read, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You know, many Christians focus all their attention on the crucifixion and for good reasons. Jesus did as Isaiah prophesied. He poured out his soul to death and he bore the sin of many. It was upon that cross that the high priest Jesus offered himself as a perfect sacrifice. We'll talk about that more as we get through our third point this morning. But Isaiah also prophesied that our Lord would continually intercede for us. We read earlier from Romans. Who's to condemn? As the enemy of our soul tries to condemn us, we have one who stands between us and the Father our Lord Jesus, that his continual work is interceding for us and it secures our salvation. And so not only did he die for us, he lives for us. On our behalf, he appears before the presence of God constantly to intercede on our behalf. And what does it mean exactly to intercede? It means that our Lord Jesus Christ in his perpetual priesthood forever lives to be the advocate, the defender, the mediator, and the intercessor for his people. He continually defends us and represents us before the Father. This is what we read in our public reading this morning, Romans 8, 33 through 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now in his epistle of 1 John, John writes in the second chapter of 1 John, he says, My little children, I'm not writing these things to you so that you may, or excuse me, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What does that mean? It means salvation is complete. It is final and it is forever because Jesus always lives to intercede for his people. I mean, this is an incredible reality. And as we think and ponder on it, it should cause an overwhelming amount of peace and joy to be before us, to think of his present work. You know, it's later in this letter of Hebrews in chapters 8, 9, and 12 that Christ is described as the mediator of the new covenant. Listen, there is no one else who can do this work. Not Mary, not the Pope, and not any other person. For Scripture clearly declares that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 It is Jesus who secures an unending salvation to all those who come to God through him. That is why he is the way and the truth and the life. He's the one who lives to make intercession for his people. And what that means, beloved, is that you can rest assured of your salvation because Christ lives to secure it. <laughs> and what makes this all possible is that he is an all-sufficient sacrifice. That's what we'll look at at the third point this morning, looking at verses 26 through 28. Picking up in chapter 7, looking at verse 26 to 28, we'll read them again. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, what we have to see here is we have to look at the character of our high priest, of our Lord. He is described here as holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. You know, the author intentionally puts these here because it's a contrast between the character of the sinful earthly priests. This priest, Christ, is perfect. He has no need to offer sacrifices for himself, but rather offers himself as the sacrifice. But like those other earthly priests, he has been tempted in every way, yet without sin. 
The author declared this back in chapter 4, verse 15. He said, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is perfectly sinless. He is absent of any moral stain or any sort of defilement. And because he is the sinless priest who offered himself as an unstained sacrifice, we read that he is now exalted above the heavens where he continues to serve as a priest forever. You know, the fact that he is without stain or blemish, that is what qualifies him to offer himself the once-for-all atoning sacrifice for the sins of others. And this is what the writer describes here in, in verse 27. In verse 27, he says, No need like those other high priests to offer sacrifice daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Again, he's pointing to Jesus' priesthood as far superior to that of the Levitical priests. They had to offer sacrifices daily and also first for their own sins. But Jesus' sacrifice of himself was once for all. The author of Hebrews expounds on this concept in chapter 9 and chapter 10. But I want to peek ahead to chapter 10 real quick. Flip over a page or two to chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Look with me at verse 12, Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Two verses later, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has done what? He has perfected them. Be perfect as your Father is perfect. Jesus has done this work. What we see here in Hebrews 10 is what we read earlier in Romans 5. In, in verse 19 of chapter 5, we read that by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is the work of Christ. That offering himself upon that cross cleared the debt from our sins and also granted us his righteousness. Oh, how his sacrifice was more than sufficient. We could say grace upon grace. As he comes to a close in this argument, the author now summarizes this argument in verse 28. He says, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You know, the Levitical priests, they were designated by law of genealogical descent, but the better priest was installed by a word of oath. God has appointed his son Jesus as priest because he is perfect forever, which means, church, we never need another. We have him in Christ. He is our permanent priest. He is our immortal intercessor. He is our all-sufficient sacrifice. 
it is no wonder that Scripture tells us that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is this Jesus. He is perfect forever. The answer to sin is Christ. He paid for our sin in full. And he lives forever to defend us and to represent us before the Father. There is no other way to the Father. There is no other way to deal with sin. Try as you may, you will not be perfect. But Jesus is perfect forever. And we're to draw near to God through him. I want to close with a warning from Charles Spurgeon. Listen to the words of Spurgeon. He says this, quote, If you will not accept this Christ, there will be, excuse me, there will never be another. And if you will not be saved by his redemption, you will never be redeemed at all. Let's bow our heads and reflect on what God has taught us this morning from his word. Father, we are humbled by your mercy and your grace. You, our holy God, would demonstrate your love to sinners like us. Thank you for your son. Thank you that we should have such a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, who is separated from sinners, who is exalted above the heavens. Thank you for his work on the cross and his continued work in heaven. Thank you that through him our salvation is secure. Help us, O oh God, to keep our eyes fixed on him, to live according to your spirit, to bring glory to you in all that we do. It is in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Let me close the service with a benediction from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. May the joy of your salvation overflow to one another as you encourage each other in Christ. God bless you, church.